Welcome to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas, my new show that brings a uniquely rational perspective to important issues facing society today. I'm happy to say today's guest is Victor Davis Hansen, my friend and colleague at the Hoover Institution. Uh, Victor is a world-renowned historian and scholar of classics and military history. Uh, we'll have an illuminating conversation about critical issues that were exposed by the pandemic, including uh, a historical context of when government has interposed these sorts of draconian restrictions on civil liberties and the ideological takeover of America's universities and campuses. Thanks for joining us and uh, stay tuned. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Victor Davis Hansen. Good morning, Victor. Good morning, Scott. I really appreciate you being here. And of course, want to start out by pointing out to the audience that Victor is one of those rare people who has an incredible breadth of knowledge, but even more so the courage to say it. Uh, and I think uh, Victor, suffice it to say, is one of the most important voices we have today for freedom in, in this country. And uh, the example that I give in a most personal way is Victor was one of the very few people, not just at Stanford University, but at my own institution, Hoover Institution of Stanford University, a policy think tank. Victor was one of the very few who not just understood the truth, but stood up for the truth in my own case. And uh, we have become even better friends because of uh, really a shared commitment to, to understanding fact and to caring about our country and the, and the future of what we see. So I'd like to talk uh, a little bit today uh, about a few topics, one of which is uh, trying to put Victor, in the historical perspective, what happened and what is still happening in the management of the pandemic, not so much on the science side, but the historical perspective on when in history, if ever, uh, we have seen such a broad takeover of, of individual civil liberties uh, that are in direct break with our Constitution, and not just in the United States, but in all free societies. Well, thank, glad to be here, Scott. Thank you for hosting me. Um, I think one thing in the United States to start with is that when we have this, what Rahm Emanuel called, never let a crisis go to waste, that is a period of a pandemic or a natural disaster or economic turmoil, then we have particular forces in this country that want to seize power that's that's not authorized by the Constitution. And I'll make a kind of a daring statement. I know that both sides are capable of it, but when the right does it, such as the McCarthy period, where there were communists in the State Department, but, you know, Joe McCarthy, when he said he had a list of 200-something communists, he didn't really substantiate that. There was a press on the left to go after it, and there was the entire infrastructure of left-wing media, which even then was controlled by the left, publishing foundations, universities. But when the left does it, they are the self-appointed watchdog. So we, I'll give you a couple examples. In World War I, 
Uh, once we, the Lusitania was sunk in, two, in 1916, and then that out, outrage that led to a declaration of war in, in April 1917, Woodrow Wilson basically suspended habeas corpus in many states. They, I mean, their people even went out um, and outlawed the teaching of German in particular classes. And his uh, attorney general went after protesters and jailed them, not pro-German protesters, just people who said, I don't think we should go in the war. And again, other things that he did is that we were making progress toward racial equality, and he simply decided to ban African-Americans in the federal workforce to the effect that he could do it. But it was all under the guise that he's a progressive, and progressives don't really, they're not illiberal people. We saw it again, Scott, in the 60s when um, this free speech movement started and everybody thought, wow, this left is finally getting America out of its Protestant straitjacket and they're going to allow nudity and art. Uh, if you want to watch pornography, deep throat, that's your individual choice. And out of that free speech, and I can remember on campus, uh, people coming in as an undergraduate at UC Santa Cruz and saying, well, we can say anything we want now. And we had a, a professor and people came in and they tackled him. And then pretty soon the left was going in and at where I was at UC Santa Cruz and disrupting classes. I remember a history class, three people came in and tried to, to actually physically stop us from getting in. The, and this was all under the guise of the new idea of free speech. And <laughs> And so what I'm getting at is, in these periods of turmoil, the left sees an opportunity to advance an agenda that otherwise doesn't have public support. And we saw it during the COVID, and not in your or my words, but in their own words. Hillary Clinton said most famously, the COVID lockdown is a chance for us to have single-payer health care. Gavin Newsom said, I think that because of the COVID lockdown, we can have a more progressive capitalism. And we know Klaus Schwab and the Great Reset wrote a book, The Great Reset in COVID-19. So the danger is not some guy with sunglasses and a uniform on that's a right-wing nut, because we all understand that he's visibly an authoritarian. But it's someone who says, I'm liberal, I'm progressive, I'm for equity, I just need the power of Dr. Fauci or somebody. I'm an icon to the left. If you just give me enough power, I can you know, declare that rent should be suspended. Uh, I can interfere with the individual contracts between a tenant this and is, landlord. Yeah. Yes, this sort of gets to <clears throat> perhaps with the answer to one of the real shocks that I had, which was the acquiescence. There was a shock, of course, that all of these liberties, uh, the, the, the power of the government uh, in a free society to shut down by decree businesses, personal movement, seeing your elderly parents, uh, you know, school closures, et cetera. But the biggest shock to me that's frightening is the acquiescence, the acceptance by Americans of these pseudoscientific, you know, decrees. And what you're sort of uh, getting at here might be the explanation, which is that it's not, it wasn't done um, by people who were in the past the caricature of those who would stamp out freedom, the fascistic, uh, cartoonish, you know, Mussolini's of the world. It was done under the guise of the uh, favored, quote-unquote, liberal uh, 
authorities. And I think that, coupled with the fear, of course, uh, which makes people a little bit irrational, I think, uh, and that sort of that part of it is understandable, might be the the real reasoning for this. You know, I wonder uh, in the beginning. You know your your comments are are uh, are in a sort of political context, and in the beginning, I think during the early 2020 phase when the campaigns were just starting, and it looked like the president, President Trump at the time, would be reelected. Uh, I think most people would have predicted that. Uh, I think many of us thought the original lockdowns. Uh, might have a political motivation, a very, a very political motivation to to change the dialogue. Uh, I don't know what what do you think of that? Because it certainly evolved into something very different that had nothing to do really with pure uh, political nature, and of course it was international. But did you have well, that I, feeling in the beginning? Yeah, that this I always was a sort of political motivation. I always look to what they say rather than what conservatives say, and so in. February of 2021, Molly Ball wrote an essay for Time Magazine. And she's, it, she gushed, she was giddy to explain how Joe Biden won the election. And she listed a lot of things. One of them was Mark Zuckerberg in Silicon Valley infusing a lot of money into key precincts. She bragged about how people had gone under the cover, and I think you're getting it, under the cover of the lockdowns in key precincts and key states, mm -hmm. they overrid the legislature. In other words, they cherry-picked liberal judges or bureaucrats, and by fiat, judicial and executive, they did things such as, you don't have to have your mail-in ballot by the deadline, 10 days in some states, or it doesn't have to match your registers, yes. uh, or it can be incomplete, or you can come back later and cure the ballot. And the result, and I think Trump was, so assumed that he was going to win, and he thought, well, this doesn't matter. But that was, and according to her own testimonies, this was preconceived and closely planned. And she said it was an intersection of the DNC, American lawyers, uh, Silicon Valley, money. And uh, the, the scariest part of what I'm getting at, Scott, is she even said in the uh, encomium that they had contacts with the protesters, the George Floyd rioters. Remember, that was 120 days. It looked basically to the, the outsider or the observer that places like Portland, Minneapolis, uh, Seattle were allowing their downtowns to be taken over. And I think even the mayor of Portland said this is a summer of love. And it, it was, I think, designed to reflect poorly on Donald Trump that he couldn't control, even though he wanted to send in the National Guard. So if he sent in the National Guard, he was a fascist. If he didn't, it just showed that everybody hated Trump and it was out of control. But she said that in this Time essay. She said they were able to contact the BLM Antifa people on the street and modulate it, meaning that if it was necessary to cool down the protest, then they did it. If it started to reflect badly on the left before the election, and then she said, if it was necessary, they were ready to go. She said, if Donald Trump had won, so they could go back out on the street, and so it was. It was in her own words. She was telling us that the left saw what Newsom and Hillary said that under the the COVID lockdown and then the one-two punch of the, the George Floyd riots, and uh, they were able to weaken Donald Trump. And remember, that was just. That was just sort of the, the 
the starter fluid to the whole conflagration because suddenly everything was politicized. Mark Milley accused the president of the United States of having a photo op because he walked over at this. And you know, almost every chairman of the Joint Chief it sometimes takes a picture. And then we learned that he contacted his sure. Chinese communist counterpart. <laughs> then we had all of these, you and I know some of them as colleagues, we had these four-star admirals and generals that were coming out in direct violation of Article 88 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice and basically calling Trump Nazi-like, a Mussolini. And it was a whole cascade of opportunism under the, the riot and the COVID for people to come out and weaponize those events as proof that Donald Trump was unfit to be president. And he didn't quite, I don't think he ever right. understood. And so this- he never understood what was going on. In fact, Molly Ball was sort of bragging that the right was clueless to what she called, and it was not my words or your words, she called it a conspiracy. She used that word four or five times in her essay. Yeah, I think that there was a big picture. I, I, would, I always look at the pandemic management and say, I'm not sure it was a big grand plan. It was a confluence of interests from a variety of motivations, some of which were political, some of which were the Klaus Schwab uh, World Economic Forum sort of grand idea. Others, I think, were simply a moral corruption, meaning people wanted to be controlling others uh, and, and pushing their own values. People wanted to be stars, visible stars on the podium. Uh, you know, uh, people had pharmaceutical money. There was all kinds of things, but they had a, a confluence of endpoint. And the endpoint was to do these lockdowns for whatever outcome uh, they actually wanted. I, I want to shift and, and ask your uh, sort of opinion on what does it say about Americans, particularly when we see the following, lockdowns were instituted, there were protests all over Western Europe in countries that we typically view as very passively accepting of more socialist policies, the Frances of the world, Italy, uh, Germany, the Netherlands, Sweden. Uh, we had protests everywhere with hundreds of thousands of people in the United Kingdom in the streets protesting the lockdowns in 2020. There was very little going on in the United States. I mean, to me, that's very frightening. A country that's founded on freedom, founded on individual liberty, as is the United States, was sort of uh, unusually acquiescent to this. What does that mean about the country, the state of the country now? And uh, perhaps it's just simply the effect of propaganda. I don't know, because there was a lot of what I call propaganda in the U.S. But what does it say about our future? Well, uh, for all the talk of the EU as being radical, it really is an aristocratic, kind of bureaucratic uh, conglomeration of, of countries. And in some ways, the Europeans are less volatile than we are. We're radically democratic. So when we have the 60s, it's it's we go into the weathermen and all of this stuff. Not that they didn't have Bader Madoff, but we, we have popular fads in this country. And um, 
So we have a, a huge middle class. We have a huge, we used to at least, we have a huge engaged uh, public. So the Europeans' critique against us is, you know, critical, critical race theory or the hula hoop or whatever the fad is, America and its mass consumer society goes full blast. I don't know if that's true or not, but we got into the idea that suddenly it was make your own mask. Everybody has to wear a mask. And once that became the de facto, de rigueur protocol, it was sort of like World War II collecting newspapers. That was the patriotic thing to do. And anybody who did not want to wear a mask, we made that term called Karen, but that wasn't a small group. There were, it wasn't so, it wasn't just the government. It were people who came out of the woodwork and became self-enforcers, almost like Eastern European concierge during the Soviet period that reported on the goings of their apartment dwellers. And that, that was what was scariest to me. I can remember uh, my daughter calling me very upset because her disabled um, daughter, who has Smith McGinnis, it's sort of like Down syndrome, but in some ways more severe, was walking along a beach with a beach in Santa Cruz with nobody around her and no mask because it, it, it a mask started to make her go into convulsions. And a, a person coming up to her and saying, how dare, and just screaming her head off at her, you're endangering our health. You're, and it became, it was very funny because we always say the right accuses people of being unpatriotic, but it was really scary how people, and you can remember the climate at Stanford University when they were following your, your telephone pings sure. if you came on campus. And so it, they created a kind of hysteria. And what I get angriest about, is that when people in the Trump administration were trying to counsel, you had Fauci and Burks and Collins, and they were feeding this. In other words, at first they had this veneer of nonpartisanship, but pretty quickly they had a lot of, you said, vested interest and agendas, but the, the net result of all of them was that they canonized a protocol, and that was you have to have one mask or two masks. You had to have a vaccine, as many boosters as possible. You had to isolate, you couldn't go out. And if anybody deviated from that, they were endangering everybody. And that was ironic because they sold all this in the first place on individual liberty. I can still remember Dr. Fauci saying as the, in November when the first vaccine, he said, I've got great news, 96% effective. And so even if somebody else unwisely, unwisely does not want to get a vaccination, it doesn't matter because you are protected from infectiousness and infectiousness. So that was, I thought, the protocol. It's like, okay, this new vaccine means you're 96%. If some guy doesn't want to get one, he can't hurt you. And if, you know, he doesn't want to wear a mask, right. he can't hurt you. But that... As the vaccine's efficacy started to, you know, be under surveillance and, and examination, then that transmogrified into if you don't get vaccinated and you don't get a booster, 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 then you're not only unpatriotic, but we sh we have the ability to get you out of the military or you can't go to work. Yes. And that that was really that was so yeah. insidious. Now, this is this is. It, it just I agree can't. with your point here. I think this was the this was the frightening part of the whole thing was that, and this was a strategy 
which was from the beginning, which was that the people who were against lockdowns were portrayed as not just unpatriotic, but dangerous. And it's the same thing with the people who didn't want to get vaccines. They were portrayed as dangerous and therefore so demonized that it promulgated. And I think this is something that is, is far worse in the United States from my own travels anecdotally in Europe over the past year and a half. And from what we read is that there's this viciousness because of the idea that has been amplified by Fauci, the NIH, Francis Collins, in, con- in a sort of concert with their friends in the media, that those who are opposed to lockdowns and those who say that, that point out the truth about, for instance, biological protection after getting an infection being better than a vaccine, these, these people are dangerous to you. And this hatred, uh, I think, is, a, is really uh, almost paralyzing and, and really creating such divisiveness in our country that it I is. think this is, a, this is a huge problem. For me, the and tipping, I want to move the, into this I'll just mention the, the university. Yeah. Let me just finish that topic. But the turning ahead, point for me was early June of 2020, when 1,100 so-called health providers said that right after the George Floyd killing that if people went out in the street and they did in Minnesota, then that was more important to their health than the violations of the protocols of masking and quarantine. And all of a sudden I thought, wow. So you get 10,000 people out in the street and they're spitting and yelling and megaphones and everything with no mask and they're congregating and they're violating the quarantine, they're violating social distancing, they're violating masks, and you're telling us that it's more important for their mental health that they do this after George Floyd's death than the rest of us. So then at that point, you could see that it was weaponized and the whole protocol was not completely a healthcare issue. It was predicated on your political outlook and ideology and utility for particular causes. And then after that, Right. Fauci, he just descended into a, a rank partisan and he just went right. exclusively on MSNBC and CNN. And, and the Trump rallies were so cold. The Obama party, his birthday party, that was okay if you didn't wear a mask. A, a Trump rally was proof that these yokels and the MAGA movement were vax deniers and dangerous to everybody. And at that point, by July or August, right, right. there the was election, a, a severe. Right, a severely political uh, basis for a lot of these people was revealed. It was exposed. And I think this kind of, uh, when that happens in public health guidance by people like Fauci, Burks, Francis Collins, that really created one of the biggest problems that we have right now, which is the uh, lack of trust in public health and science. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the major legacies of, of Dr. Fauci. Yeah. I mean, you can't have a society, it's very dangerous to have a society where everything is politicized so that we have lost faith and a, at a huge percentage by political party has lost face, faith in trusting science itself. I think we have a huge challenge to fix that. Um, and one of the biggest perpetrators has been the university yeah. in this. They, the universities, as you know, Victor, you're a, you're a university professor and have been for, for decades. 
And I think we, we I, I too am, and we have always, I think, naturally uh, been taught that universities are, university professors are, you know, some of the leaders of American thought, where the free exchange of ideas is the central focus, where, and the university professors are really bequeathed at trust by the public in being experts, in being objective, in being, uh, in in teaching critical thinking uh, to our own children. And this has been tremendously violated by what I personally saw and what you have endured, I think, for a long time, which is character assassination, hypocrisy at the greatest. And uh, I'd like you to comment on on your thoughts about how the universities now have really uh, sort of lost their pedestal, and rightfully so as entrusted with the really the sacred role of teaching our children? I think up until the 60s, universities were considered kind of weird places where liberals dominated, but they were classical liberals. They believed in, as you said, inductive reasoning and free speech, and they kind of were biased. I think, but during the 60s, of course, the cultural revolution centered on campus, and the the mantra was, America is run by corporations. America is run by fanatic Christians. America is run by right-wing capitalists. America is run by stupid middle-class consumers that are right-wing, the Archie Bunkers. Therefore, the university stands boldly alone as the counterpoint to that. And therefore, we don't have to be intellectually diverse because we're the only bastion of uh, liberal thinking and we and we're sort of in a tall in this big sea of repression but the funny thing was as they were saying that they were on a long march so that the the rockefeller foundation the guggenheim foundation or hollywood it was no longer diverse ideas in hollywood or professional sports corporate boardrooms silicon valley emerged uh k through 12 so most of the major institutions went left and rather than claiming that they were the only the voice in the wilderness, now they became sort of the avatar, the, the focal point for all of this left-wing indoctrination. And they did something that was very, I think, important. They gave up the idea, to the extent they had it, of diverse ideas, and diversity became monotony. It just became, we're going to look different, so we're gonna bring in blacks and Latinos and gays and women and fewer white males, and therefore were diverse, even though all of those views were exactly the same. And their idea was now, we're not just gonna be the counterpoint, but we're at a point now where the right endangers your health or your very existence because, and then we went into climate change can destroy the planet in 10 years. So we have to not allow people to have an honest discussion because they're climate denialists. Or as we made this 60 years of racial progress in the civil rights movement, and then all of a sudden it was, you know, more racial tension. If we don't have proportional representation, if we don't have repertory uh, representation. And then it became... There are voices on the university that are counter-revolutionary and they're in the way of equity and inclusion and diversity and, and equality of result. And therefore, if we're at Stanford University and Ben Shapiro speaking, it's okay to put a poster up showing bug spray 
and saying, you know, get rid of Shapiro with obvious Holocaust echoes, and the university won't do anything about it, at least until it's called upon it. Or, or you can go after a speaker or at Middlebury, or you can try to injure somebody, but that's okay because these are necessary means in a very psychodramatic fashion that now the university is not just a place to teach people, but it's to train progressive soldiers in this huge army of needed revolution. And that became very scary. And the reason is how did that come about? And I think part of the problem was, because I do always look for these institutional, I don't believe that somebody just thought, Herbert Marcuse or somebody thought it up and then they said, yeah. But what happened was the university got the government to come in and subsidize student loans. And now we're $1.7 trillion in student indebtedness. And at that point, they did that in the 80s. You can see that the tuition rate went higher than the rate of inflation. And suddenly, these students were given courses that in a free market, they would have never wanted to major in. Gender studies, radical environmental studies, leisure studies, peace studies, these sociological uh, partisan deductive courses because they had no utility. But if you're gonna be subsidized and you're going to be a student, three units here, six units there, and the graduation rates went from about 50% in a four-year uh, students to about 50%, six and eight years to get a degree. Even then, only 50% got it. We were turning out huge numbers of students that had no inductive training or compositional training or mathematical or computational training, but they were therapeutically trained You know, to spot uh, discrimination or transphobia or climate change. And they were put out there indebted. And so their whole adolescence was sort of, or teenage years or early adulthood was interrupted with huge, huge debt and no real future and no training and no inductive ability to distinguish falsity from truth but we're told and trained to be partisan. But a huge ideological takeover. Exactly. And then the faculty, because they uh, understood the government was ultimately the arbiter of uh, the financial part, they had no moral obligation to these students. They never said to a student, if you come to Stanford or you come to Berkeley or you come to UC San Diego or Cal State San Jose and you take these student loans, This is the amount of money you're going to earn when you graduate. This is the amount of interest you're going to earn. And these are 50 majors that we offer. And here's the average salary per each major. So we're not telling you to pick your major or your life's career based on what you're going to owe. But we want to be aware of you, just like car salesmen are, of your liability, the indebtedness. And so these young, impressionable youth, they just were told by these professors that were inert. Their fields were inert. Well, I'm going to minor in gender studies, and then I'm going to major in environmental studies, and then I'm going to graduate, and I'm going to be a soldier in in the woke revolution. And all of a sudden, they graduated, and they thought, "Oh my God, I'm a I'm an AOC barista. Uh, you know, I'm a bartender. I have no future. Yeah. I've got this huge debt, and these tenured professors who can't be fired, and have lifetime job. You know." security and they have you know they work 32 weeks a year 
they've told me all this stuff. And there was a lot of bitterness. And the universities, uh, if you look at things like in the ratio of administrators to professors, uh, professors in the last 30 years have increased on campuses, tenure track professors by about three to 5%. Administrators have gone up 200%. So at a place like Yale or Harvard, it's almost getting to yeah, one to one. Yeah, it's striking, it's shocking. And that's a huge, huge amount of overhead, wonder, financial overhead. I yeah, I, I always wonder why uh, thinking people keep giving massive philanthropic contributions to universities that do that. You yeah. know, there's two separate things. One is the ideological takeover uh, and the uh, what students are actually doing with, with this $250,000 for four years education as they come out. But there's a second thing, which is uh, simply the way universities censor. And I think this has been uh, sort of distorted. And the censorship on university campuses is the current state of affairs. But censorship has nuance. I mean, censorship is not simply firing people or just blanket uh, stopping people from speaking. Censorship has nuance on university, as you know. Uh, censorship is done by intimidation, uh, character smears. Uh, this happened to me. It's happened to you many times. In fact, we co-authored a piece about this with our colleague, Neil Ferguson. Uh, Stanford is particularly uh, guilty of fostering a pseudo-organizational uh, character assassination of faculty who they disagree with. And uh, this is very harmful for two reasons, in my view. One is it, it is intimidating to people and causes self-cancellation of others who would otherwise want to speak the truth or speak their opinions, and that's very harmful. But secondly, it teaches the students, our own children, America's next leaders, that this is the way we should conduct ourselves, that we should put up posters demonizing and vilifying and even forbidding invited speakers, that we should use character assassination and intimidation instead of having the actual debate on the ideas. I mean, I don't know. Uh, this was not the original intent of universities at all. And the, the, uh, the lack of a sort of moral leadership, I think, is the crisis here. We have, uh, as you know, uh, more than 60 college presidents of private universities in the United States who earn over a million dollars a year. We have a massive deficit of leadership in people who are in leadership positions. And I wonder if there is a historical uh, sort of analogy to that sort of time period. And how do we end this? How do we get people to step up, people with integrity, which I, I actually believe most people are good people, they need to be emboldened to step forward to get engaged. But have we had a time in history where there was such cowardice uh, and a lack of integrity in the United States in leadership? In the United States? Or is this a unique time period? Uh, yeah, is this a unique time period? No, I, because I think we've always prided ourselves on having boldness. Well, it started in basically. And I think we were students. I'm a little older than you are, but I can remember that college presidents in the late 60s and early 70s 
were presented with something they'd never been presented before. Either they turn over uh, their curriculum or uh, their administrative code, which they followed to the students, or they were gonna be fired. And you say to yourself, how could they be fired when the Board of Trustees is their ultimate arbiter? Well, the Board of Trustees was scared as well that somebody, and it was kind of like the Jacobin moment in 1793 in the French Revolution, where all of a sudden, people who had legitimate you know, claims like Mario Salvio, that if you're at Berkeley, you should be able to go to a defined space at a public university and express opposition to the war if you want, big deal. But that was hijacked by Jacobins. And their idea was, we're going to intimidate everybody who doesn't agree with us, and we're gonna make life very miserable for them. And what would that be like? That would be like if you were a professor they were going to scream and yell at you as you walked across campus. They were gonna burst into your class. They were going to monitor your grading practices to see if they could see a pattern. Or And now that's gone full into the woke movement in which most professors uh, have to have a statement on their syllabus or somewhere in their, in their public exposure that they support diversity, equity, inclusion. When a person is hired, kind of like a loyalty oath, they yes. have to, they're, they're loyal to diversity, equity, or you're not gonna be hired. And we have all of these diversity czars that will examine syllabi and write you memos and saying you have to include these things on your syllabi. And then we're having repertory admissions were not proportionally represented, but we have particular so-called marginalized groups who feel that they should be admitted without the standard qualification in greater numbers than their percentages in the demographic. And when they come to campus, then if a professor finds them unprepared and gives them a D and that is disproportionate, then that professor knows he's going to be targeted. So the reaction to all of this, Scott, is it's right. kind of like a, an indemnity policy. Every person is faced on a campus. Do you want to take out an insurance policy from one uh, if you if you get in trouble with your grading, if you're getting in trouble with your standards, if you say a word that's ill considered, if you make a slip, if you if somebody walks in your office and you say, "Well, you look very attractive today," anything like that, you take out an insurance policy of being a leftist, and that gives you some margin of error. So when you mention Stanford and when they they being the the student faculty senate and some of the administration. When they decided to go after you and Neil and I, we didn't have the insurance policy. But at the same time they were doing that, congruent to what they were doing, think of what we were having high placed coaches and administrators that were selling admissions at Stanford. We were having the business school plagued with a controversy over flagrant sexual harassment and conflict of interest. We were having, uh, we were having, you know, as I said, selling of the admissions. There was a whole streak of anti-Semitic activity that had not been addressed. And as we're speaking now, speaking today, Stanford, and we had professors who, I should say, some of our colleagues who were on the board of Theranos that collapsed that big Ponzi scheme. And, and, and as this was all happening, we had this Stanford dropout, but Stanford affiliated Elizabeth Holmes that was knee deep in this $8 billion Ponzi scheme. And now the successor to her is Sam Bankman-Fried, who grew up in the Stanford campus, built 
you know, probably $11 million. But his parents were activist law professors. One of them was a bundler of Silicon Valley money. The other was a, a, an advisor to Elizabeth Warren. And they probably were knee deep in this program in the sense that they had money transferred from their son to buy real estate. But what I'm getting at in all of these cases, there was almost no outrage. In other words, people thought, well, there's no outrage right now at two law professors who probably were involved, or at least there's suspicion that they received money from their They're alleged, son. alleged to it. Alleged. Yes. I want to make very careful. They're right. alleged we'll see to it. what's proven, but I, I think you're right. And, and so they took out, I mean, but nobody says anything. But if you were Scott Atlas right now, and your son was involved in a financial Ponzi-type scheme, and the newspapers related that you, Scott Atlas, had a luxury condo in the Bahamas that you bought on other pricey real estate, they would go after you and ask for your resignation. They would say you, you were under investigation of, that's not gonna happen. And I don't know what's the president of the university. I, I tend to believe that he probably made an innocent mistake. I don't know, nobody knows. But the point is that, that because he's woke, as is these professors, as is was Elizabeth Holmes, who was a big Hillary Clinton donor, all of these people, as are the Theranos people, as are, they, they get a level of immunity that pe people don't usually get. They have insulation. They, they insulation. Have, and they that sends protection. a message. And that's your point, that when a young student comes to campus or a young assistant professor knows he's going to be up for tenure or she's going to be up for tenure, then they have to make a decision. Do they go along with things and keep quiet or even be an advocate for these woke causes or do they speak out against them? If they speak out against them, the whole power of the university is going to be unleashed against them and they're going to have no margin of error. So they're going to go back to their background. They're going to look at everything they said, everything they tweeted, everything they posted. And that's going to be confirmation that they're counter-revolutionary. It's very Bolshevik, Jacobin, right. and I mean, Maoist. the question, Victor, yeah. right, the question really, uh, given all of that, is where, how do we get out of this? How do we, uh, and I'm asked this all the time, how do we get out of the spiral downward that is really destroying uh, the fundamental American society and really Western civilization freedoms. Yeah. You know, uh, the universities are critical. They're not the only part that has been destroyed, really. But I, my answer is, frankly, nothing good will come from the top. We cannot expect a top-down solution. It has to come from the ground, from bottom up. It, it really does rely on individuals with integrity to rise up, and what I mean by rise up, of course, is speak up. That's what the word means in a free society. Make your voices heard, seek leadership positions, get involved. But do you have any kind of concluding thoughts on uh, how we fix things? Because we're not going to give up. Uh, there's much too much at stake for our children, for other uh, generations, and uh, it's simply impossible to let this stand as it is. What are your thoughts on how we, how we get out of this and how we fix things? I, I think there has to be a three-pronged approach. And the first is that 
the government has got to stop subsidizing something that doesn't work. And so if you think about where, how do they have all this money? And it's basically from student loans. You're talking about universities. Universities. So if the university, if the government said, we're not going to subsidize student loans, then the university would have to be cost conscious. That's number one. And then if we made the university, if the government said, we're not only not going to get out, we're not going to get involved in subsidizing failure or inflationary tuition spikes or getting gouged, but we're going to insist that the constitution applies to public universities or even the private. And that would mean you get fourth, fifth, and sixth amendment rights if you're accused of something. You have first amendment rights. And if you don't, these universities are in violation. For example, we, re- we understood that uh, many universities had violated the Clary Act after George Floyd. That was simply a federal law that says if every student needs to be apprised of the crime rate in the vicinity, I think it's a mile or two of a campus, and every time there's a crime committed, the university must publish, it's a federal law, information about the suspect. Well, a lot of people thought that that was after George Floyd illiberal. So they, and you could, you knew it. You could see before George Floyd, they would say this suspect and they would describe him was found on campus. Now they don't do that. They say unavailable or uh, the right. suspect. And they, my point yes, is, if you st- the physical description, yes, you, if the government said we're going to get out of the and we're going to enforce the laws and they're going to apply to the university, that's one thing that we could do. The the second thing is. The alumni have to understand that when they give any grant to a university, they're largely fueling the fire. So they have to be discriminatory. And we have to create a climate in which it's more important uh, for Americans to give money to universities that follow First Amendment rights and free speech than it is to have your name at an Ivy League school or your grandkids getting in. And that has to be a social pressure that's brought right. upon people. So if we say, if we create a climate- this is not, And this is, this is important, but it's not easy. It's not this easy. It's not easy, although America has the culture yeah, yeah. uniquely of people donating to universities. Yes, but we have, uh, so we have to make, you're right, we have to get the good people who are the donors to understand how they can target their money. And to, then we have uh, to get, to, yeah, we to have to get more comp- causes, not just their names. We have to get more competition. So whether it's these, it's either either taking back universities or expanding things like Hillsdale or these new ideas like the University of Austin, whatever it is, there has to be other places that are advertised that we can give you a, a superior education because we're not woke and we don't waste resources or mandatory commissar-like activities, and we're going to be cost-competitive. And we have to support those institutions. And then finally, and this is the hardest, I think people all, according to their station, have to, at, at some point, because there is no popular support for this, what we're talking about. The, if you ask the, the average person, do you believe in free speech? Yes. Do you believe that they should have diversity oaths? No. But if you have enough people that say, not just speak out, but say, you can call me anything you want. It has zero effect on me. And you have a, enough people to say that. It's kind of like the emperor has no clothes. And that's, you know, 
I thought there were legitimate grievances with the Me Too movement, but once they started going after almost everybody, you know, and they went, they started attacking liberal icons, and they went after Joe Biden. <laughs> At some point, people said, "That's it, no more," because it's too dangerous. That we, this thing we created is right. now. It, they took off Garrett Harrison right. Ford. They took off all of our liberal icons. That's okay. But now they're going after the President of the United States, and Tara Reid cannot be believed. And so I'm not suggesting that was good, but I'm suggesting that at some point, these mass hysterias have, they, they are like a balloon and somebody needs to puncture them and they blow up. And if enough people say that about the universe, that this is crazy, and then we get alternatives. And there's, finally, there's a couple of other institutional things I think would be really important. Ultimately, we're talking about students that come to the university that have been indoctrinated in K through 12, especially high school. We're talking about the schools of education that are really the movers and shakers of mass education. And they're all trained in the universities. But if we just said simply, most public schools and the state said, we will accept either a teaching credential from the school of education. But if you don't wanna do that, just as parochial teachers don't have to do it, you can get a master's degree one year in an academic subject. I think most people who graduated who wanted to go into public teaching, the idea if they were an English major, just another year of reading Shakespeare or history, rather than go through that indoctrination that's political at the School of Education. And that would really, for all practical purposes, emasculate the schools of education because they wouldn't have a monopoly on credentialing. It wouldn't be you could just say, well, I can go get a credential, but I don't have to. Just like I teach JC, I don't need a credential. I just need a master's degree. And that would open up a lot of things. So there are, right. there are things, getting the government out of the student loans. One of the things that I have, it'll never happen, but I think it would really change everything very quickly. If you just, we all decided until recently that everybody had to have a um, SAT or ACT to enter. And the idea was, the schools are so diverse in the, the value of their GPAs that the university had no ability to calibrate what a 4.3 meant at Fresno versus a 4.3 at Woodside, for example. So we're going to look at standardized tests. It, it was a very liberal idea, especially because there was anti-Semitism in the Ivy League, and they, had, they felt they had too many Jewish students, and they were discriminating against certain, I guess we would call the equivalent of zip codes. But once you had standardized right. tests, it allowed people from every background. But what if we did it to graduate? Right. And this was the great equalizer when it, it was first introduced. It was. And we could do it for graduation. We could just say, we're not going to give you a, a bar exam, but we want everybody, when they get a bachelor's degree, our university, they have to have a minimum score. In other words, just as you had to take, we required you to take an SAT until a year ago or at, to get into our university, and we had sort of limits that if you got below a certain score, we wouldn't admit you. You have to, for us to give you a BA, you have to have some minimum, not a lot high, but just a minimum score. And I think that would really shock the universities if the, it got out that, and I do believe that half of the students in some of these universities would either score no better or worse than they did when they entered. And that would put a lot of pressure on them. A lot of pressure on them to offer yeah, you're, courses. You're basically your concept 
Right. Your concept yeah. is adding accountability yeah. to the to university, yeah. which to. we all know will never be done voluntarily. Never. So we'll, mm. uh, it's going to take leadership. Uh, it's true that the government, whether you like it or not, political leaders have power and authority. Uh, we hope we can get some who understand uh, that it's not just, as Christy Nome once said, Governor Nome, she said, it's not simply knowing what to do. It's also having the courage to do it that makes somebody a good leader uh, and an executive authority. I, I just so add I think, uh, fingers crossed. And I'll just if end with a, a ahead, comment. I, I talked to uh, a large, successful Silicon Valley entrepreneur who's a donor, and he said something to me because I was voicing what you're talking about, my concern about the the end of meritocracy and what that would, I said, we're going to get to the point where these famous universities are not going to be able to produce engineers because of, of um, woke grading and admittance and, and accountability. And he said, it, where have you been, Victor? It's already happened. We know, and he mentioned some universities that when they graduate students, we know that, they're in, that, that that degree is very prestigious, but otherwise it means nothing because we know they weren't trained and we know even yes. to the point that the wokeness has entered com computational engineering STEM uh, and medicine, as you know. And so what he was saying yes. is that many large firms, uh, tech firms, startups, have now on their own instituted coding tests before they hire people, even though they've been certified with bachelor's or master's or PhDs from very prestigious. And he said, we even offer standardized tests for people. And I said, but you're very liberal, all you people. He said, yes, we are. We, won't, we don't publicize this, but for all practical purposes, there is no meritocracy and we have to have meritocracy or we'll go broke. We compete in a globalized and we're competing right. against Asian and European firms. And he said, you know what? We're getting to the point yes. now, if you get a degree from Georgia Tech or a place like that, we value it as high or higher than a, a, a computational degree from, from Stanford because we know that the virus of wokeism hasn't penetrated those departments and they're purely meritocratic. And that's going to be yes. very important because and what your point, ultimately yes, these, these universities I, are I think the suicidal. Sector, yeah. It doesn't right. work. The private sector, as you're pointing out, is really the, the final stop, really, in many ways to this uh, penetration of wokeness and replacement of merit. And, uh, you know, again, frighteningly, what we've seen are the black rocks of the world, but also private sector uh, penetration of wokeism. And, you know, we're, we're finally seeing a pushback. We're seeing a pushback against the educational uh, devolution by people like Governor DeSantis, who understands that policies and actions are more important than just complaining. And he's done a great job in Florida. But also we see people like Vivek Ramaswamy and others speaking out against this corporate wokeism, which ultimately uh, will, will not only destroy jobs and opportunities for people, but it will really destroy uh, the entire merit basis of, of our society and, and therefore really uh, endanger the future of the country, uh, as you know. So uh, mm -hmm. 
you know, there's no magic, single magic bullet, but there, there's a lot of partial solutions. I want to thank you, Victor, for uh, taking the time today. Uh, it's a great pleasure always to talk with you and um, really always a pleasure to talk with not just someone who's rational and sane, but somebody who has knowledge and you're both. So thank, <laughs> thank you again you. for being here. Looking forward to the next time. Thank you, Scott, for having me. Thank you for listening to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas. If you want to find out more about today's guest, Victor Davis Hansen, you can check out his links and his own personal website. And don't forget, subscribe to our show on YouTube, as well as on Spotify, Apple, Google, and anywhere else you're listening to podcasts right now. I'll see you next time.